0: The people of Venezuela do not need the weasel words of a letter to the Guardian from assorted Stalinist Trotskyists, anti-Semites and and apparently dead people but also from members of Labour's frontbench what they need is our solidarity yeah. and milk. Always, me and army, some tough sons of business. I recruit my army from the orphanages. I've been to St. Herman's Church, set my religious vows. I suffer the, the milk out of a thousand cows.
1: i've got too many things open i've got our mike Gates reading series ah. open oh of course <laughs> <laughs> oh mike Gates. Oh,
2: he's the gift that just keeps on giving i uh, know <laughs> <laughs> the gift that just keeps on gaping it's
1: such a descriptive name
2: <laughs> it's a gaping void of fuckery
3: milk, <laughs>
1: milk. sobbing away about milk And Brexit. Brexit, yeah. I need
2: to watch that video after the recording. Yeah, Uh, it's not
1: very good. I just thought it was funny. I just watched it muted and it's just Gapes, like, jabbing his finger up and down. Well, it's just, like, complaining about Labour's Brexit strategy.
2: Have you seen one of the headlines on BBC News? No, what is it? Robbie Williams' tormenting rock star page.
1: Oh, yeah, I I did see this. Jimmy yeah, Ro- Page. Robbie Williams is playing other famous 1970s rock bands to Jimmy Page, so like he's playing so the
2: equivalent of him in the 70s. So well, you know Jimmy music. Page
1: from Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's basically him and Robbie Williams have been having a dispute because they're neighbours, and I think, was it Robbie Williams wanted to build a house extension?
2: He wanted to build a swimming pool. He wanted to build (laughs) a swimming
1: pool, yeah, and they've been having like a huge row about it, and apparently Robbie Williams has won, and now he's taunting Jimmy Page by playing Pink Pink Floyd, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple and other 1970s peers of Led Zeppelin. Very loud in his stereo. And also walking around with his shirt open, dressed like Robert Plant.
3: Uh, but with, but oh with, God. Sounds with, like a fun little celebrity beef. Well, yeah. yeah,
2: you know, Robbie Williams will never be able to top Jimmy Page in his collaboration with Puff Daddy uh, <laughs> for the Godzilla theme song.
1: Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I remember reading about that. When I was a lot younger, I was like, what? a collaboration. Yeah, I was like reading about it in Classic Rock magazine or Dad's Weekly or something. It was just Jimmy Page talking about his experience working with Diddy and he was quite positive about it, I think. I think he said that he just, I guess, like whatever the equivalent of Skype was back then, he just like, (laughs) they had a video link and he just played the riff from Kashmir or something while Diddy did the rest. (laughs) There you go.
2: Yeah, it's like da-da-da, da-da-da. Da, yeah da, da, So, yes, the so
3: technological predecessor romantic. to real politic
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I guess Gapes is our equivalent of Godzilla. <laughs> gapezilla fires out steaming milk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Opposing the government and opposing the conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that, is the nature of the hard left. And, of of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent whatsoever. you know you the hard left. From the, left. In the you know, ascendancy I, within, the, know within the Labour that. Party who associate with the hard left. You just said okay, that we were right, to right wing, hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalisation without compensation, hard left wing position, hard to the left, hard left to the hard left, the hard left the hard left, hard left hard left the hard left, the hard left hard left, hard left hard left, hard hard left hard left the hard left left hard left, 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 hard
1: Oh, well, okay, so, like, fuck, I guess we've finally got this Clint episode together then. Yep. Yeah. Who's
2: going to introduce?
1: Right, just a word in advance, I've got a little bit of a headache. It's annoying, it's just come on, but that's a fact. Uh, one, I don't one, know. We,
2: we'll get in,
3: we'll get the good stuff, we'll get out. My nose uh, is a bit blocked up, so that, that's okay. All, so. Yeah, I
1: guess I was going to start by saying, Tom, did you have a good day at work today? It was all right. Not, <laughs> not great, not great. You, have you got It wasn't complaints? amazing.
2: Well, it's just fucking work, really, isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> why why do you ask pussy generation <laughs> pull yourself up by your bootstraps like none of this bitching and moaning complaining asking for fucking handouts you just want the moon on a stick you want the world know, handed yeah. to you on a plate don't I you? Know. You, you working two
2: jobs is not enough
3: You 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 little,
1: you pussies today You just haven't got the ethic that the greatest generation had Yeah,
2: the only way you're not going to be considered A part of the pussy generation Is only if you thwart a terrorist incident
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah exactly
2: And then you get it made into a film
1: There was a film I watched last night That reminded me of of course Clint Eastwood's classic 2018 film The 1517 to Paris And it was (laughs) Tony Scott's late period work The Taking of Pelham 123 Which I watched last night And it's some black guy who has like one line in it saying to a woman like, what, you think I've got a plan to stop this train hijacking because I'm a tough black guy? And she's like, no. I saw your ring. And he's got like a Marine's ring on his finger. Anyway, this guy is (laughs) sort of like the three lads from the 1517 to Paris of The Taking of Pelham 123, except he just gets brutally murdered by John Travolta. uh, Rather than heroically saving the day, Denzel Washington has to come and do that later. So that's an immediate kind of cinematic, what's not an antecedent? What's the thing following in the path of... Well, I guess it is an antecedent because it came out nine years before Clint's film that I compared it to. But who's to say Tony Scott is not a heavily Clint-influenced filmmaker?
2: If only he made a film with Clint.
1: Yeah, I don't think he is because Clint's like fucking, there you go, stick the camera here, shoot it. Very unfussy. Whereas Tony Scott is, you know... Much more methodical. Yeah, yeah, just like dose every fucking shot up to the eyeballs. Whatever. Yeah. yeah
2: just, and we were better off because of it.
1: We were better off because <laughs> of it. I enjoy a good Tony Scott film. That's all.
2: Hey, no, yeah, I, think, oh, look, sure. hey, I have a soft spot for The Last Boy Scout. Yeah. Wh- no what no do matter you how think... ridiculous and offensive it is. What <laughs> do you
1: think of his later work where his films got quite avant garde? Oh, yeah. Taking <laughs> like, a Pella
2: 1 3, a very, very avant garde film.
1: Well, no, no, but really in terms I like, of. I like in terms Taking of the a Pella I like it's, his. It, it's, oh, it's, uh, it's pretty manic, it's isn't it? It's one of the films with the most swearing of all
3: time
1: <laughs> did you know that so i was really disappointed when i saw that deja vu which i still haven't seen is pg-13 i was like for fuck's sake like i re- <laughs> you know <laughs> i thought that, that he might have established this kind of niche with crazy editing and ridiculous swearing and but no no anyway this is all pretty irrelevant what are we talking about today yeah this guys? is very
3: little to do with clint, clint. <laughs> it's not isn't, it's not tony scott one day one day
1: yeah so as those of you who follow me on Twitter may be aware of the last couple of months I have been taking a deep dive into Clint Eastwood his filmography as a star, a director and a producer and hmm. a composer at yeah, times the,
2: the well-known leftist Clint Eastwood
3: yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've been I've been taking a very shallow splash in the puddle of the dregs of his work that Netflix (laughs) has to offer at the moment, pretty much.
1: Yeah, you've really been scraping the bottom of the barrel, I
3: think. I watched all the half-good ones. (laughs) So so you were sad. In fairness, he didn't direct them, but I did watch the Dollars films, which were quite good.
1: Oh, did you watch all of them?
3: Yeah, well, I watched, how many years there's there only two there's three there's the there's good the bad and the Damn. ugly as well I haven't seen the good the bad and the ugly yet oh really Somehow. okay oh man oh well, shit like, like I the... say a very
1: shallow splash it's like the length of the other two put together so <laughs> <laughs> and we're pretty much
2: the budget of the first two trebled yeah
1: yeah yeah well because <laughs> the, first the, the, one the other was two,
2: like, two yeah the first have, one was like 200,000 so yeah the first one cost about two hundred thousand dollars. Second one half a million and then I think by the time they got to the good the bad and the ugly it was over a million dollars maybe reaching 2. Mm. You can tell because of course everything's much grander in terms of the set designs and stuff and also the scene yeah. in the film when they blow up the bridge the first time they shot that no camera was rolling. <laughs> so I think i completely
1: heard that one, completely yeah, yeah. <laughs> Imagine if Fitzcarraldo Herzog, or good push that boat up the mountain and then they were just like oh shit we didn't I mean they you were... forgot to video yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> but I sorry, think Clint's yeah, I an have...
2: important person to talk about really yeah anyway he's always been there in film over the past six
1: decades almost since the mid-1950s when he started appearing on television screens in the tv series rawhide
0: i'm teaching a wet behind the ears kid a lesson in manners that's enough nope he still has it coming only you're doing all the shooting well he's got a gun now all he has to do is pick it up what'd you? do and a high price on a pair of pants, aren't you? Maybe you'd like to pay for them. Any time, mister.
1: And subsequently, he was offered a role in a low-budget Italian Western in the early 1960s called A Fistful of Dollars. And it was by a director called Sergio Leone, who had only ever directed one film before, and I don't think it was particularly well received or anything. Clint read the script and he was like, "Oh, this is great! I loved this when Akira Kurosawa made it as Yojimbo." <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and then, and so he met up with Sergio Leone, presumably with an interpreter because Leone couldn't speak English. And Clint was like, "Yeah, this is great! I love the way you've rewritten Yojimbo here." And Sergio Leone was like, "Shh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not supposed to be Yojimbo because he hadn't acquired the rights." But anyway, they pressed on regardless, made the film. As far as I know. ...didn't incur any kind of financial legal repercussions, (laughs) but I might be wrong. Well, it turns out I was wrong about this. Dead wrong, in fact. Alex Cox writes in his book, An Introduction to Film, and just as it staggered ignominiously into the sunset, the Western was saved by the Italians. Sergio Leone's Dollars trilogy was vastly successful in Italy... Its wider distribution was delayed, for Leone had borrowed the plot of A Fistful of Dollars, that's borrowed in inverted commas, from a Kurosawa samurai film, Yojimbo, and Kurosawa soon wrote to Leone, Signor Leone, I have just had the chance to see your film. It is a very fine film, but it is my film. As Japan is a signatory to the Bern Convention on International Copyright, you must pay me, Akira Kurosawa. A lawsuit between the Kurosawa company and Leone's producers ensued. Kurosawa won the Japanese rights and a share of the international profits. The film and its two sequels cleaned up abroad as at home. Then they made another one and then as we said the two of them were massively successful and they made a third one and by this time Clint had become a very big star back in the United States. So at that point I guess he was kind of like fuck it I don't need to make these small time Italian films anymore I'm going back to America. <laughs> yeah. And, I think uh,
2: one of his first westerns back there was Hang 'em High wasn't it?
1: Yeah, Hang 'em High was well, like so many Clint Eastwood films that Clint didn't direct himself although he hadn't started directing at this point. It's directed by an Eastwood apparatchik. Yeah, which um, is
2: you you're seeing a lot of his films the guy he brings on board like right I'm going to tell you some scenes I want in there you direct the rest of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's his style of doing
1: it it's directed by ted post who was a director on rawhide where clint liked him and he was like i want ted post i think don seagull who he had also started working with was like i don't want to do it so clint requested ted post even though he was completely untested and he got what he wanted and ted post would later go on to direct the dirty harry sequel magnum force which i think we'll talk about a little bit later but yes Hang 'em High, very good film, enjoyed it. And another key thing that happened in the Clint Eastwood saga at this point is in 1967, so just before Hang 'em High, using proceeds from the Dollars Trilogy, which as I say had been big international hits at this point, mm. Clint set up his own production company called the Malpaso Company. Yes. named after, I think, a stream near his hometown of Mount Carmel or something. Anyway, it's a very simple thing. Clint saw the name of the stream. He was like, I like that. That's what I'm calling my company. And It's been his
2: company ever since. That's the company that's produced his latest The Mule.
1: Yeah, every single film that he's been in, bar I think about three since 1967, have been Malpaso Productions. And around this time, he established a very, very fruitful director-star partnership with Don Siegel, who, in my view, is one of the great American directors. Personally, like, despite being a huge Clint Eastwood fan... I'm not a huge Dirty Harry guy. I mean, I think the first one is a good film, but to be honest, they are a bit fash. And people say, like... (laughs) Just a bit, yeah. People say, like, oh, Clint is not portraying Dirty Harry as a hero or whatever. And it's like, no, no, I've seen interviews with Clint. Like, he totally thinks that Harry Callahan is a fucking hero. You know, it's, it's classic Clint, the first Dirty Harry. It's like, Dirty Harry needs to catch some horrible child murderer or something. And the, it, it, the, the, cops... the killer's
2: based on the Zodiac killer I think
1: Yeah and there's just too much red tape Basically the cops keep yeah, Clint right. keeps being about to catch the killer And then the other the... cops would be like No no we've got all these regulations Yeah and the, this... running, the running
2: trend in the Dirty Harry films Is it's the bureaucracy of the famously Liberal police force stopping Harry From doing his job basically That's the yeah. running trend in all these films Yeah, Particularly yeah, I definitely. showed a clip to Jack from The Enforcer, the third Dirty Harry film From 1976 and I yeah. showed it to Via a clip on YouTube with a title called "Dirty Harry on Feminism and Women's Quotas," so you yeah, can, oh, you, you can imagine God. what this film is like to a lot of people who have the to, majority of that problematic clear.
3: politics.
4: It is the mayor's intention that this department be brought more into line with the mainstream of 20th-century thought.
3: Just how does he figure to do that,
4: Mrs. Gray? For one thing, His Honor intends to. Uh, Broaden the areas of participation for women in the police force.
1: That sounds very stylish. The majority of that clip already appeared in our episode on Jonathan Pye. If you want to use some of it again (laughs) here.
2: The usual, yeah. (laughs) 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 Shit really, yeah. No, I remember watching the first Dirty Harry film fair a few years ago and stuff, and it's a pretty compact ninety an hour and forty minutes, is it? Dirty Harry, the first one? Something like that. Yeah. I think so uh, something like that, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: It's a fucking very tight, taut, all those kind of adjectives that people describe thrillers <laughs> with. Kind of yeah.
2: thriller. It's, um, it's not an overbearing, as I say in this film, the killer is very much based off the Zodiac killer, but it's not like David Fincher's Zodiac, which is like a very long, sprawling, at times dull, two and a half hour yes, long film. Yeah. No, I do quite like Zodiac. It's just I do flabby in places it does.
1: I like it yeah. too, but yeah, Dirty Harry is fuck all like
3: zodiac <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: of course one of the writers look Harry uncredited one of the writers was Terence Malick and I think I, I said in a previous discussion with Tom <laughs> yeah, we, when he was down we were talking about what would Terrence Malick's Dirty Harry be like it's just kind of pan away from Harry yeah. smoking some rapist or something to like a leaf but to be fair I like, think that's a bit fatuous because his first film was Badlands which is quite a pulpy crime film yeah. so it it's not like Malik can't do other stuff it's just that he's got his thing now
2: <laughs> there were yeah. five Dirty Harry films yeah um,
1: and as I say I like Dirty Harry it's just I don't <laughs> like it as a franchise really it's I had not no yet.
3: idea there was five of them wow
2: the last one was in 1988 called The Deadpool and it actually has yeah. Jim Carrey in one of his first film roles in <laughs> well, his, his first dramatic <laughs> role at least he plays Imagine like that. a drug-addled rock star who gets killed in it and it's part of this I think the story is it's a pool game of different people who are kind of lined up to be. I don't know, it's just the usual Dirty Harry Fair. It's the
1: fifth one in the series. It was on its last legs. These days, Jim Carrey is just addled by all the diseases he's contracted through refusing to get any vaccinations. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Charlton Heston movies are no longer in demand, and his immortal soul may lay forever in the sand. The angels wouldn't take him up to heaven like he planned Cause they couldn't pry that gun from his cold, dead hand What did he say? <laughs> it takes cold, dead hand the cold, killer in the first one, the one is called
1: Scorpio a <laughs> <head>. <laughs> That's Yeah, like yeah, nice. blatant, yeah. Like in some, well, uh, Pauline Kale, of course, famously described Dirty uh, e. Harry as fascist medievalism.
4: I thought that his relish when he killed the man who stood for all liberal principles rolled into one plus all evil rolled into one. You know, the man who was an absolutely maniac of a killer but wore a peace button so that Dirty Harry stood for all the, all the right wing forces in American life. Uh, that, that relish that Eastwood showed about killing, I found offensive. He's very unlike the John Wayne character who stood for the right, who was a man of principle. Clint Eastwood seems almost now a machine for killing. Well, I think he does express a new mood in movies, and certainly he expresses a new mood in American life. The Bogart hero felt pain. When he killed someone, he suffered from it, and he was a man of experience. You saw the lines of pain on his face. The Eastwood character does express a new emotionlessness about killing that people feel is the truth now. And Clint Eastwood is a totally unprincipled killer. So. And, and Paul,
2: Pauline kale also describes Salt of the Earth as a propaganda film straight from the Kremlin, so, uh, yeah. Yeah,
4: well,
1: all right, Pauline Kale's a melt next. <laughs> exactly. But no, she had a famous Salt of the Earth is a great film, folks, check it out. Yeah, Salt of the Earth is great, but Pauline kale had a famously frosty relationship with Clint Eastwood, and I believe in one of the Dirty Harry sequels, a film critic character very clearly based on Pauline kale <laughs> is horror <laughs> (laughs) horribly killed by uh, some kind of serial killer.
2: Imagine him trying to convince the director to put that scene in there. Like, like, I know this is obviously based off Pauline, but what, (laughs) what are you trying to do here? No, I'm just trying to make a point. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's... film
2: critics, they're failed filmmakers, you know. Yeah.
4: <laughs> he definitely but, uh... said that in his life. He's an extremely mediocre director. He really doesn't know how to dramatise material. The sequences don't build. The films he directs feels very long because there's a static, dead feeling in them and a passionless... Uh, quality to them well i think he's barely an actor at all that is he has minimal resources but that doesn't necessarily matter for a screen actor political attitudes are carried and very intentionally carried in some of these films i mean the the john wayne films and the clint eastwood films made during the nixon era and particularly the heyday of the nixon era we're carrying the line for a political position in this country, and those pictures were very definitely shaped in those directions. It is not merely that these people express certain attitudes off screen, their scripts are shaped in terms of what those stars believe. One reviews him in terms of what he does on the screen. I know very, very little about him beyond that and what comes across on the screen is a man with a very narrow range of emotions now the clint eastwood off the screen may be a very affable man in fact the laugh lines on his face uh, which make him resemble Shirley MacLaine at times, suggests that he's probably a very genial person.
1: But I mean, the Dirty Harry films, in the war that they wage against bureaucracy, be it police red tape that stops cops using the necessary force to catch killers, <laughs> or <laughs> be Shooting it, you know, women's quotas demanding that women be on the force. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to chew on politically in them. But... I would like to
2: say that the twist in The Enforcer where that scene is in the film when Dirty Harry's brought onto this board to discuss he needs to select several officers and then I think five of them have to be men and three of them have to be women one of the cops who comes in for the interview who he questions and stuff saying that oh she's never fired a gun before the twist is she saves him at the end. Oh and, really? But but duh, it duh, never duh. changes his character. He's still the same old Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah Still the same he, as he always is.
1: He had a few films like that in the eighties, including one that Tom and I watched called Tightrope. I mean oh, I wanna do things kind of chronologically, so let's yeah, not we'll, dwell too we'll, much on these eighties we'll, pigs. Yeah. Bit. But these are films where he's a bit of a chauvinistic sexist pig and he has to kind of learn from a strong woman that actually, you know, women aren't all bad. And he's just... By the end, he has, like, a slight grudging respect for women. But not that much. Like, he'll still make a sexist crack. Not to the point where his
2: character development goes on to the next film. He goes right back to square one.
1: But he'll uh, still make a sexist crack. But... With a twinkle in his eye that suggests (laughs) that maybe it's meant in more of a kind-hearted way than (laughs) it might otherwise be. So anyway, let's just go all the way back. So the Dirty Harry films, largely without merit. Obviously, the first one is okay. The second one, Magnum Force, I really didn't like. It's based on the abandoned script idea for the first one, written by Terence Malick, and rewritten by the right-wing dream team of. Of John Milius and <laughs> Michael Cimino and you know despite enjoying a good right-wing film I, I was left severely disappointed it's got a very very inept long boring chase scene but wasn't even in the script as written and I think Clint persuaded Ted Post remember him from earlier in the episode yeah, to yeah. come along and direct it and add that bit in and john Milius, the guy who coined the phrase apocalypse now because the harry krishna hippie people would walk around the university campus with nirvana now not the band the, the, the spiritual concept. <laughs> like nirvana would not form for another yeah tw- they were just tw- ahead of their time <laughs> yeah
3: Hello, hello, hello. Hello, 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 hello.
1: Good Good job, man. He didn't like that and of course he was very into war and nukes and crushing communism (laughs) uh good Good. job.
2: And surfing. Don't forget surfing.
1: (laughs) Well, surfing is quintessentially American, isn't it? If the Soviets did do a full Red Dawn, that would be the first thing that they'd ban. <laughs> the the surfing Boys is entirely the
3: antithetical to communism. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there is an inherent
1: contradiction there. But it's not very good. John Milius actually was very unhappy with the script. He thought that Dirty Harry shouldn't be having actual romantic relationships in it. He thought that Dirty Harry was basically this bitter, lonely incel who should kind of just only ever be able to have transactional relationships with women if they're sex workers and otherwise just, you know, really not be able to have any kind of a human bond with them. And I actually agree with John Milius there. I mean, I don't know if he thinks that's a good thing. If he's like, if he's like John Milius, like, no fap January or whatever it is. But yeah. um, I think that that's a much truer portrayal of this fucking psychopath Callahan.
3: It's a bit yeah, God's Lonely ease. Man as well, isn't it? Yeah,
1: fuck, they should have got Schrader in so they'd have had a script that's just like Schrader wrote a bit and Milius wrote a bit and Chimino wrote a bit and Malik wrote a bit and it just got everyone, got all the other lads in, got Scorsese in, George Lucas, yeah. got <laughs> Elaine May to do rewrites, everyone who was active in that era. But no, I wanna go back to Don Siegel anyway, because First okay. Dirty Harry film, best Dirty Harry film. Not the best Don Siegel Clint Eastwood film, so. Before Dirty Harry they did I think three films together. There's Coogan's Bluff mm. which I watched with my dad recently from 1968. Shit I really didn't like it. It's, <laughs> really? Uh, it, they sort of transposed Clint as the character from the westerns onto a then modern day New York setting and the gender politics in it are just beyond retrograde. <laughs> I thought it was just an offensively misogynistic worse film. than Tightrope? Yeah actually I don't know I think much worse than Tightrope. Tightrope wrote it was trying to do better it just <laughs> failed uh, yeah. you know what Kuben's about play Bluffet. misty for me now
2: Intr- <laughs> that, nah, that's fucking problematic yeah. in its gender politics yeah Beyond-
1: i still think it's worse from play misty for me because play misty for me i guess it's kind of a misogynistic crazy woman obsessed with you kind of trope but the obsessed person is a kind of cinematic thriller trope going a long way back you know it's a very hitchcockian film which is the yeah, o- sure. most obvious comparison but we haven't got to there yet we're still talking about don C. <laughs> <laughs> Coogan's Bluff,
2: Coogan's Bluff, yeah, yeah. And Coogan's there's another Bluff, one he did as rubbish. well, wasn't he? Uh, Escape he, from Alcatraz.
1: He, that was later on, yeah. yeah, although I think Clint basically directed that himself and fired Don Siegel at some point. Oh, but already? after Coogan's Bluff, there's Two Mules for Sister Sarah, which is Clint and Shirley MacLaine. And Shirley MacLaine is a nun. Who spoiler turns out is actually a hooker with a heart of gold, and Clint is just like Clint in a slightly like kind of laid back. Yeah, it's a, it's a more comic film, but I thought it was a good light-hearted western. And then 1971, you've got the beguiled. So Clint and Don Siegel did this in the same year as Dirty Harry, and it's a fucking phenomenal film. It's a western set in the Civil War. And Clint is a Union soldier who's wounded in battle... And taken in by a house of confederate women. And it's kind of like this big house where I guess the girls there are orphans. Because it kind of doubles as a kind of girl's school. And he kind of rests there and recuperates for a bit. But he's like a bad guy. And he can't help himself but, you know, (laughs) coming on to as many of these women as possible. And sure enough it starts to create divisions between the other women. And they start to get jealous. And yeah, long story short, he basically gets thrown down the stairs and I won't tell you what happens from there, but it, <laughs> okay. but it, it gets a bit like Stephen King's misery. Yeah,
4: okay. and, <laughs> interesting, nice. interesting. Well, now on BBC Two, a welcome back to Alex Cox to introduce a new season of cult films in Drome*. In
0: 1971, Eastwood and Don Siegel made the majorly successful Dirty Harry, and in 1979 they did Escape from Alcatraz. But in between, Eastwood and Siegel found time to make another film, One that's extremely weird and uncharacteristic of them. And that's the film we're going to see tonight. It's another Western set in the Civil War and called The Beguiled. The Beguiled is unlike anything else that Siegel did. For a start, it's mostly about women. Eastwood is the only male character in the film. Nor is it a conventional cowboy film. There are no cowboys. Instead of his usual heroic self, Eastwood plays a deserter from the Union Army, wounded but game for whatever's going on in a weird gothic house full of obsessive confederate spinsters who decide to keep him. It's a cross between a Jacobean tragedy and Ambrose Bierce, which is not very far apart at all. And the characters in The Beguiled? Well, they're sort of 60s-ish. In fact, The Beguiled comes from that happy time when it was possible to experiment with cinema. To play with film language with multi exposures and dream sequences the era of Midnight Cowboy and the last movie Today when the American film industry makes a film about the Civil War They fill it with lies about honor and nobility and the privilege of being gunned down carrying the flag and call it glory Wilfred Owen would not approve but Beers would be amused but, yeah, this it's is in... a
2: running trend. Women just can't help themselves with Clint. This is yeah. like, It's almost as if he's like, insisting this gets put in the films. Well, the that's... women can't resist me. Uh, Clint, This every film we have this in, why Why does this <laughs> have to be?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, okay, women can't resist him, but at the same time, his family hate him in almost all of Oh this. yeah, that's it. <laughs> we'll, yeah. We'll, again, we'll get to that later. We'll because that's, to that, that that's a, a hallmark trend, isn't isn't? of Clint the auteur. We're still talking about his <laughs> early acting days. So yeah, The Beguiled is just a brilliant film and it's one of clint's best and most complicated performances up to that point because you know a lot of the man with no name in the dollars trilogy was just kind of letting the costume do the talking, as Harry Dean Stanton would say. Clint is one of the only actors who, when he gets a script, he goes through and he starts cutting out his dialogue. (laughs) Um, But I think The Beguiled is an excellent film. Regarding Tom's point about Clint being irresistible to women, he requested that the script to Magnum Force, the Dirty Harry sequel from 73 be rewritten so that a woman in it comes on to Dirty Harry rather than the other way around. <laughs> and I imagine Clint said this was because he received a lot of fan mail requesting this from women who were like, hey, why don't we have more assertive broads in the cinema? And Clint was like, yeah, I imagine he was quite flattered if indeed that was real fan mail or this was just his ego. Like, yeah, you know, I think a woman should uh, come on to meet. How about that? But yeah, anyway, that rewrite was made.
2: Hilarious. And then we're up to 69 now, or 68, 69, or we're into the early 70s now. With we're in
1: 71 was when Beguiled and Dirty Harry were made. So that was effectively the end of his partnership with Don Siegel, although 1979 they would get back together for Escape from Alcatraz, quite acrimoniously but I I mean I haven't seen that film in years but I remember it being good. And of like, course in
2: 71 you had his directorial debut with the film you yes, already mentioned, Play Misty, Play for, Misty me. for Me.
1: Now there's a thing in his next film, High Plains Drifter, which we'll get onto properly in a minute, but I think there may be some little allusion to them in Play Misty for Me too, but in High Plains drifter there are two tombstones and one of them says don siegel and one says sergio leone and someone was like clint so is that a tribute to the directors who taught you the craft and he was like no it's because I buried this film. (laughs) Doesn't he do that in Unforgiven? Oh, maybe
2: it's in Unforgiven, you know. I'm pretty sure it's in Unforgiven, but it's definitely in one of his directed westerns where he puts the names of Don Siegel and Sergio on the tombstones. And I think he downplays, because a lot of people try to up the kind of idea, oh, he's trying to bury his past, but he was just like, oh, no, I just thought it'd be a funny thing to put on a tombstone. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) Not as cruel as you might think he was (laughs) intending.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, actually, I just want to get a word in for Don Siegel because I've been watching a lot of his films recently. So, as our followers on Twitter will have probably seen, I posted a couple of clips from The Killers from 1964, (laughs) a remake of a film based on a Hemingway short story from 1946. Don Siegel remade that great cast. Lee Marvin, John Cassavetes... Ronald Reagan, Reagan is the bad guy in the film, his final film role and the only film where he would play the bad guy, except for in documentaries, (laughs) and he gets killed, which is pretty good, and also punched punched. at one point. (laughs) Yeah, that's what our Twitter followers will have seen from the film. I'd also recommend Riot in Cell Block 11 from 1954, a prison riot film. Private Hell 36, the film noir by Seagull, co-written by and starring Ida Lupino, who was pretty much the only, well, literally, the only female star from the golden age of Hollywood to become a director in her own right. You've Mm. got Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original from 56, which is also a story that has been told, I think, to great effect by Seagull, Phil Kaufman, and Abel Ferrara. (laughs) I watched 1993's Body Snatchers recently. You finally got around to watching that, did you? I did, yeah. There. I thought it was good. You, I am guessing you're going
2: to skip the Oliver uh, Hirsch Beagle, I think is uh, uh the yes. Invasion, The Invasion with Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman. Is it Oliver Hirsch Beagle?
1: I, d- Hirsh- I don't care. So, that, that one looks yes. shite. Like it's not by a filmmaker I care about. You know I've got, <laughs> I, I have watched three versions of the same story <laughs> in probably as many months. And hey,
2: I, don't diss Oliver Hirschbegel, the director of Diana. All right.
3: Oh fuck that's But he, who it but, is. he
2: but he <laughs> also directed Downfall, which was the film about oh, it, yeah, those last yeah. days, which is actually quite a, a decent. film. It is film. good. Yeah, I've yeah, seen, yeah. I've seen yeah. Downfall.
1: Yeah, but Diana was meant to be like one of the worst films of all time. Uh, oh, I yeah, it's, to, it's, it's terrible.
2: It's I'm just awful. trying to think.
1: There's obviously all the Clint Eastwood films as well, which are excellent.
2: Before you carry on, sorry. Diana is basically, if you gave a Hallmark TV film, $50 million. And <laughs> that's what you got, <laughs> basically. If you give it a big budget, that's what you get with Diana.
3: Sounds like an No, Sorry, it was $15 million. Shit. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Anyway, no,
2: no more time spent towards that film. Forget no, it. Don't diamond. Uh,
1: that was what we call a detour in the podcasting lingo, I believe. But yeah, the other Don <laughs> Siegel film that I would like to mention before we bury him, as Clint would say, is Is The Shootist. Starring ah, yeah. uh, someone who's not a favourite of mine, despite, of course, my extreme right wing politics, John <laughs> Wayne. Uh, yeah, Choose and- is a good film. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I, yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was uh, a lot better than a lot of the early John Wayne stuff but I won't mention particular names so I don't want to be a philistine but you've got James Stewart in it you've got a young Ron Howard I didn't realise that but yeah you've you've also got James Stewart and Lauren Bacall so you've got three big stars from the golden yeah. age Scatman you know. Cribbers is
2: in there in a small role as well oh yeah.
1: shit yeah you're right
2: yeah, yeah she is just good uh, I think yeah Wayne's final film role And
1: it's an attempt to do a slightly kind of unglamorous western presaging Unforgiven about the ageing guy. Yeah fighter who is on his way out and
2: it's the closest that John Wayne's ever really got to doing a revisionist western but even Yeah, I think so. Not, I was he- not,
1: I was hesitating to use the phrase but yeah, it's definitely yeah, the closest. Yeah. exactly. I wouldn't go all sure. over and say that you know
2: because he, he was not a like he was someone who was not a big fan of films like High
1: Noon and stuff like that which he saw as no. being. He thought that Clint's High Plains Drifter was an appalling morally repugnant <laughs> film. But I think probably for for the wrong reasons probably for that bit in high plains drifter when clint is just like hey look my character he's really in touch with the native americans he's really <laughs> on their wavelength you know just like me that kind of where clint gets a bit like marlon brando although actually i think marlon brando's work with native americans was probably the most morally upstanding thing he ever did but clint took a different kind of approach with his westerns than john wayne and the fact that wayne would never want to go into a full-fledged revisionist mode is better Best illustrated by a little story from the set of The Shootist. Or, you know what? How about we let Clint tell this story himself?
3: I remember Don Siegel got in, in trouble when he was doing a film called The Shootist uh, some years later and he was working with John Wayne. The, the villain gets sneaks around the room and John Wayne comes up behind him and he says, Then just shoot him. And he said, There's a long pause and he said,
0: John Wayne said, You may not shoot him in the back. And he says, "Yeah, yeah, you shoot him. Just shoot him. Get rid of him. Because you got four other guys." And he says, "I don't
3: shoot anyone in the back." <laughs> and Don made a terrible error. He said Clint Eastwood would have shot him in the back. <laughs> and he said Wayne, Wayne turned blue. You see? And, um, and uh, so, uh, uh, and he said, "I don't care what that kid would have done. I don't shoot him in the back." <laughs>
1: John Wayne got really really pissed and he was just like, I don't give a damn what that kid would do. And that's why
2: they never made a film together. <laughs> I know Clint was interested in possibly doing a film with Wayne, but I don't think Wayne was interested but I don't think it would have bettered his legacy anymore. Clint has his own legacy that doesn't need to be matched up with the white supremacist John Wayne, of
1: course. A self described white supremacist. Literally, yeah. Oh yeah. So I guess now we can move on to Clint the auteur. I mean, were there any other notable acting roles that he did before he started directing? Well, he
2: was in a musical. He was in... uh, Paint Your Wagon. Paint Your Wagon with Lee Marvin, yeah?
1: Yeah, I was surprised because I've never seen this and, Tom, you said apparently Lee Marvin sings in it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My granddad used to put this on always when I was a kid. Lee Marvin cannot sing for shit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But he's got a really
2: kind of... I was born (laughs) under wandering (laughs) star. He's got such a really husky, deep... D- voice, but it kind didn't of he have a big within. hit with a song from a soundtrack? That was it. I think it was Wandering Star, yeah, Lee Marvin. Yeah, that particular track kind of had a sort of life outside of the musical and it was quite popular with a lot of people. I um.
3: was born on <laughs>
0: a born star. Um. I was born on
3: <laughs> a born star.
2: But uh, I think Clint sings in it I don't know if it was his actual singing voice though I think he might have mined it
1: I reckon he did sing his own parts Because even prior to the musical Joys of the Gran Torino soundtrack Clint had released an album in 1963 called Rawhide's Clint Eastwood sings cowboy favorites. So you know he's always had a set of pipes on him. But
2: the song's called "Stare at Trees," and it's just about his character, like, oh, no, it's him talking to trees. I talk to trees, or the song, something like that. It's just like his character just talks to trees because he's so lonesome and he can't find romance and
1: all that bollocks. Yeah. Wow. Very sad and tragic. tragic. It's
2: a very middling western (laughs) musical.
1: Yeah, I probably will never watch it. Not. <laughs> Central viewing unless you want to watch a bit of lee
2: marvin looking a bit kind of rough singing yeah. his deep drowls you got <laughs> joe
1: kidd from 1972 another western robert Divalco stars in that i saw that a few years ago i remember liking it i remember absolutely nothing about it so pat garrett know, and the I, billy I, the kid no 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 i'm a huge fan of pat garrett and oh billy no the sorry kid. that's one of my favorite films of all time
0: Mom take this badge off of me
1: no Joe kid.
2: Oh sorry no my headphones fell out so when i put them back in all, all the head right. was kid and i was like
1: oh yeah okay <laughs> hey, listen kid it's the pussy generation you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and anyway have you seen kelly's heroes from 1970? Oh the war film yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> What do you think of that? That's where they I go mean, after I the watched gold it you. years ago. Yeah, I saw it on T V once. I don't think it's very good. Harry Dean
3: Stanton's. I, I remember being mildly amused at times. Okay. <laughs> and that's about it. <laughs>
2: it's just a standard yeah. ensemble war film, really, isn't it? Where they kind of like, hey, it's this group of GIs and they go off to rob a bank behind, you know yeah, stealing
3: Nazi it. gold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's pretty passable stuff really. Donald Sutherland's in it as well. Don Rickles yeah, isn't yeah. it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, still, I mean, Harry Dean—something is really worth watching. If it's got Clint and Harry Dean in it, I think. Right. So, yeah, in 1971, as we said, he started directing with *Play Misty for Me* a Hitchcockian thriller where Clint plays not a cop or a guy in the West shooting people he plays a radio DJ like an yeah. easy listening DJ because I mean you could tell of his film that Clint is a kind of guy out of step with the times musically because it's like the 60s didn't happen it's just all like this like middle of the road like lounge jazz and stuff that he yeah. plays on the radio station it's funny you mention that because when
2: I was doing a bit of my research and I was watching some of the interviews like it was one where his family were talking about him doing the mule actually. Yeah. And they were saying that he's very much a man who because of course his time in the 60s during the counterculture stuff he didn't really kind of throw himself into that. His time came before that in many ways and so he was not with the counterculture at all really. I don't think he's taken any kind of like he didn't take LSD or anything like that. Well, he, is, he, yeah.
1: he was born in the 1930s. He was yeah. born in sorry, in 1930. So by the time the counterculture happened Since which 40, uh, so. which I'd say achieved cultural primacy in rough 66, 67 then he was approaching 40 so it just wasn't his scene really. Musically, culturally I've seen the interview you're talking about Tom, it's with his daughter Alison Eastwood isn't it? And she she says that you know Clint's always been against drugs talking about how in in (laughs) his new film The Mule, which I'd like to point out is the second of two films directed by 88 year old Clint Eastwood in 2018 (laughs) she's talking about how in that he plays this 90 year old dude who smuggled a load of coke for the cartels and she's just like oh Clint would never do that he's always been super (laughs) anti-drugs we were
2: surprised when he wanted to do this (laughs)
1: yeah 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 and it's like well I guess Clint is like he's a bit square
2: (laughs) he just enjoys a bit of beer from time to time supposedly so
0: what was it like to watch your father take on that mantle of this rather eccentric character
4: I was really
1: surprised that he was doing this film actually because he's somebody who absolutely hates drugs and doesn't really you know he'll have a beer or something, but he's very anti that sort of thing. He's not from the 60s. He's older than that, so he didn't go through that whole hippie, dope-smoking, taking (laughs) acid thing. You know, both of my parents are so straight-laced. And so I was really surprised that he was going to play somebody that was going to be driving around with a bunch of blow in the back of his truck. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because he's square but cool, so he kind of appeals to right-wing types because they're all pathetic nerds and they want yeah, to have that kind of level-headed, you know, be that icon of masculinity. Yeah. who still kind of has their shitty politics as well at the same time. Yeah,
2: where they're like, I've got to be fully focused for any debate that could happen at any moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was reading it was an article in the Atlantic called Clint Eastwood: Political Wanderer, and in the 1980s, this conservative film critic called Richard Grenier published an article in 1984 called The World's Favourite Movie Star, praising Eastwood lavishly for lacking the slightest doubt as to the legitimacy of the use of force in service of justice, even rudimentary justice this attitude has earned him among some movie reviewers a reaction i think it is only fair to call hatred like typical conservative i think it is only fair to call hatred you know just call it hatred then (laughs) but a year later the tables had turned leading grenier to rebuke the star in a second essay no sorry a decade later So 1994, in it, he noted his former praise for Eastwood and for the role he had played throughout his career, the enforcer of law and justice before continuing. But now all has changed. Today, Eastwood is the darling of the critics. He has been on a spiritual journey and is now reaping the rewards. I guess like from a Hollywood libs. This analysis was based largely on Unforgiven, which Grenier described as a full-scale, systematic act of contrition, a repudiation and dismantling of the whole legendary masculine character type of which, for this generation, Eastwood himself had become the leading icon. So this guy is like really upset because by portraying guns and violence as... Horrible and unglamorous and unforgiven Clint basically destroyed His dream His naive (laughs) reaction Review of the world As a place where that sort of masculinity Really means something That's why you gotta love Clint Yeah, <laughs> to piss it, off a critic like that yeah i mean clint shattered this guy's view that the clint eastwood in movies is not a man out of time but somebody integral to the modern world you know unforgiven we'll get to it later because i do think we should go kind of chronologically but it's just like yeah everything's a bit shit about violence isn't it <laughs> But I'll articulate that thought better. I'm just trying to link it in with that little thing <coughs> I read. We talk about Clint as an icon of masculinity, and I mean, as that would suggest, his films do have some very problematic gender politics. I mean, I was talking about how oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I didn't I didn't like Coogan's run because I thought it was really sexist, but his second film as a director, I mean, the first one, as Tom said, I guess it's an argument to be made. It's a bit misogynistic. I, I think that's because when I said it to Tom, oh, it's a good misogynistic thriller because Because it just reminds me of the later sort of the Michael Douglas loses his shit films like Fatal Attraction or basic yes, instinct, right, yeah. where a cool guy is just pursued by this woman. It, it is a trope, yeah. So it kind of fits within the misogynist thriller genre, even though it's it's not the most grotesquely misogynistic film. I think his next film, although it has things to recommend about it, in showing an unglamorous depiction of the West, shorn of the old mythology, I think it does have some actually disgusting misogyny in it. I mean, within the first 15 minutes, this woman is being aggressive to Clint's character so literally content warning stop listening here or skip forward but basically he rapes her And then he rapes someone again later in the film. And the scenes are useless. They're beyond useless. They're pointless and disgusting.
2: Just a reference uh, for the listeners, this is High Plains Drifter.
1: Yeah, this is High Plains Drifter from 1973. And a lot of films, although I think there's a huge problem with this, I mean, Clint's oeuvre in general is marred by a preponderance of sexual violence it's my biggest objection to his films and I think something we should talk about now we've gotten to him as a director. A film blogger called Alex Withrow who has this site called And So It Begins did a review of all Clint's films a few years ago and he added up something I think something like 13 of Clint's films or something like that featured rape as a plot point. Wow! (laughs) I feel it's used lazily quite frequently as a pretext for revenge in high Plains drifter it's Mm. worse than that it feels pointless and vulgar and gratuitous and i think although he's gone back to that well so to speak many times since it's never been egregious as in that one film it completely ruined my enjoyment of the movie which otherwise i think would have been something i enjoyed a lot and it made it impossible at the end to root really for that cheer. character. Yeah, well, I, yeah, because they set him up as a very bad man, but then at the end he does kind of go and save the day. It's hard to Come go, put much investment yeah. in that man's redemption arc um, right. once you've seen what's going on. If that is indeed the point, I may have missed it. I mean, saying that, actually, friend of the show Edie Miller is a big fan of High Plains Drifter, and although clarifying that she usually despises rape scenes, she will defend the one in that film on the basis that Clint character is almost like in pale rider though he's more a kind of angel of death in that he's supposed to be the devil so he is beyond morality in high plains drifter but yeah that was clint's first western as a director i would say subsequently he got a lot better at doing them i haven't seen breezy which he he only directs he doesn't star in it though on letterboxd will sloan from the important cinema club and michael and us two other podcasts has a list of films that people have only seen if they've watched the director's entire filmography and Breezy was on that list as the kind of film that only somebody doing a deep dive into Clint would watch yes. <laughs> and I've done a pretty deep dive into Clint but I've got to say I've not gone that deep because I was like is Clint in it no <laughs> is there lots of guns and shooting in it no no does it look like a boring... Ro- Do I care what Clint has to say about, like, romance and relationships? Yeah. Fuck no. <laughs> Absolutely not. So I decided not to watch it. I have seen, though, his following film, 1975's The Iger Sanction, which is... Uh, problematic! <laughs> <It's>, Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I will say that there is a character in the film who is quite clearly portrayed as gay, and he has a dog... Whose name is a homophobic slur beginning with F. Um, Right. Okay. Just an example, there's like a Nazi albino in it, who uh, I think uh, is a, what? It's a very, very offensive portrayal of an albino. He's like a vampire, just kind of staying inside all the time. He literally can't go outside. I'm trying to find my review of it, because as I recall, it's a film of two halves. So the first part of it is just like Clint ripping off James Bond with himself <laughs> in the film. Then the second half of it is a mountain climbing movie. <laughs> I was going to say mountain disaster. <laughs> I can't remember if there is any kind of disaster, but like Clint has <laughs> got to climb a mountain for some reason and it's all like real stunts. Like Clint and the actors actually did climb a mountain and it's quite technically impressive, but it's also quite boring. And the first part of a movie where it's just ridiculous James Bond rip off is slightly more fun. Speaking of the terrible gender politics of Clint's film, it has... Has a line where he seduces a woman who's another spy by saying, I thought I'd given up rape. But I changed my mind. What? 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 That's the charming Bondian banter. Ah, that, yes, that, I remember that... multiple
2: <laughs> Bond films where he, uh, <laughs> he came out with that line, yeah.
1: To be fair, Bond <laughs> says and does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> pretty but, oh, 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 he oh, God. says
3: anything on that on the nose. That's <laughs> pretty... yeah, well,
1: because a producer would be like, uh, <laughs> yeah. no, cut this. This is for a family audience. Could you but imagine <laughs>
2: editing the Iger sanction? I'm guessing the clip would have been around, so you would have like, no, no, no. no. Like, we can you imagine the editor going, over that scene over and over and that line coming up and like ah, should we cut this
3: this is not a great line it. really is it I mean,
1: it's usually easy to persuade <laughs> Clint to cut a line especially if it's one of his own so <laughs> it's it's, like, he Clint, must just is completely be really acceptable. no 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 no
3: we keep that one in that's important that's a thematic thing I'm trying to get across here yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're like Clint should we change the name of
1: the gay character's dog no, no, it's essential to the plot. Yeah, the have you ever speech. seen Dambusters?
3: <laughs> That's what this film's about.
1: Yes, following the Iger sanction, he made a film that was actually good. Just before <laughs> it, he'd done a film with Michael Cimino called yes. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. It's, yes. it's an enjoyable film, much better than Heaven's Gate. It's uh, probably
2: Cimino's, probably one of his best films, and right before he went so far up his own ass.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, it's got no ridiculous pomp and ceremony. Like, he doesn't make Clint do a fucking ballet in it or anything thing like you know yeah. he- Heaven's Gate and The Deer Hunter are half choreography and half imperialism um,
2: <laughs> With Thunderbolt and Lightfoot it starts off as a bromance
1: in some ways
2: these two guys driving around stealing stuff and then yeah. halfway through it sort of shift gears into a crime yeah, film Yeah Jeff, it's, it's
1: Jeff Ridges good. co-stars in it he kind of upstaged Clint a bit which I don't think Clint was happy about and Chumino actually took the role because this is a guy whose filmmaking is consummately masturbatory like there's nobody <laughs> Oh, yeah. more kind of like let just set up a shot and let the light reflect on it this way oh, God, for yeah, Cimino, yeah. because he knew that he would be under budget and on time with Clint because if he was like Clint let's do a third take Clint would be like no <laughs> let, me, let me find
2: the exact because of course Clint was probably the only actor that was ever able to make Chimino work on time let me yeah. just find it this is from Wikipedia sorry guys <laughs>
0: <laughs> our consummate our main source here. of information.
2: Everything's That's... from Wikipedia. Hey man, it's got references, so back off life. Right?
1: Anything <laughs> worth knowing is on Wikipedia. Although <laughs> like, generally the, like the thing on Mike to... Gapes' Wikipedia page about us and our uh, milk. That's meat. essential. It's essential. Milk!
2: Yeah. <laughs> Although Eastwood generally refused to spend much time in scouting for locations, particularly unfamiliar ones, Chimino and Eastwood's producer Robert Daly travelled extensively around the big sky country in Montana. Eastwood yeah. did not like to do any more than free takes on any given shot, according to co star Jeff Bridges. I would always go to Mike and say, I think I can do one more. I got an idea. And Mike would say, I gotta ask Clint. Clint would say, <laughs> Give the kid a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Oaken First assistant director on Thunderbolt added, Clint was the only guy that ever said no. Michael said, (laughs) okay, let's go for another take it was take four, Clint would say, no, we got enough. We got it.
1: (laughs) Just putting his foot down.
4: I love that.
1: This is a guy who famously, although I reckon it's probably apocryphal, and he said it once, and somebody who wasn't usually on his sets assumed that it was what he said all the time. But there's this kind of apocryphal thing that Clint doesn't say cuts when he's directing. He says, that's enough of that shit.
2: Yes! And just to give people an idea of how fucking difficult it was to work with Michael Cimino, when he was filming Heaven's Gate, he would sometimes wait extended periods of time if he was having a wide shot of the whole crowd of people moving across a western American vista he would hold on for an incredible extended amount of time just so the cloud formation in the shot would look good enough for him that was how fucking as Jack says masturbatory he was a very (laughs) difficult individual and from an interview I read with him a year before he passed away from the Hollywood Reporter I think I think he granted them an interview he's a very very problematic conservative and misogynistic individual. He described... Oh, really? Um, right. He described... I mean, yeah, shock and horror. If <laughs> you've seen The Deer Hunter and it's pretty nasty, as you say, Jack, imperialism but you get that idea. But yeah, he described Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker as being, oh, the film the girl made about the box. So... Yeah. <laughs> wow! Yeah, he's a pretty... pretty not a nice guy.
1: You'd think Reactionaries would be more of a fan of what Bigelow has turned into. <laughs> Just kind of running her scripts past the CIA and everything. I mean, I think Catherine Bigelow is a very good filmmaker. But yeah, absolutely. It's, it's yeah. just—it's just zero dark thirty.
3: Yeah, um, very fresh. I don't really yeah.
2: want to watch a film where you got to get through the first two hours to enjoy thirty minutes of good composition. Like, more right. I <laughs> <laughs>
3: see him take down Big Benloden. Oh, yeah. Take him down, Benloden. Take him down.
2: <laughs> <laughs> gotta get right. through two hours of shit to get to the good stuff. Take right, him no
1: Laden. So. Uh, <laughs> Following the classics that are Thunderbolt and Lightfoot and the far superior, the Eiger Sanction, Uh, Clint then teamed up with an auteur I'm a big fan of, Philip Kaufman. Now, Philip Kaufman's, of course, the director of The Right Stuff, the great movie about space travel. He's the director of The Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid, the sly, winking, revisionist western that I really recommend. Sly winking. So, oh that uh, sounds like... Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, Philip Kaufman, good director... Now, I don't want to uncritically frame Phil Kaufman as this kind of progressive director in contrast to Clint, so using Alex Cox's introduction to film as my source again, here's a little bit about a Kaufman movie that I do really, really like called The Right Stuff. This is in a chapter about Hollywood self-censorship and product placement, and it's in a section about the military-industrial complex and its role in Hollywood films. Product placement has become a very big business, worth 8.25 billion per annum worldwide, according to a 2013 analysis, with almost 5 billion of those dollars being spent in the United States. Most of that money was spent on placing products in sports and television shows, but a substantial amount went to the Hollywood studios. The US military isn't allowed to offer money to the studios, but it doesn't need to. It has facilities, tanks, aircraft, aircraft carriers, and free extras to trade instead. David L. Robb observes in his book Operation Hollywood, pages 177-88, to 88, that all the branches of the US military offer resources to the studios in return for the right to vet screenplays and require changes. As an example, he gives The Right Stuff, USA 1983, which the US Navy viewed as an excellent recruiting tool. However, the Navy refused to provide the producers with assistance until they agreed to make several changes to the script and to reduce the amount of swearing in the picture. Since the film was a tool for recruiting young people, the Navy needed it to receive a PG rating rather than an R. Studio, director, that's Kaufman, and screenwriters complied. The next paragraph in this actually references Clint, but I think I should quote that later. Kaufman wrote the script to the outlaw Josie Wales, the next Western that Clint was going to do, and he was going to direct it, but then Clint fired him for doing too many takes. (laughs) Of course. course. (laughs) Classic. Get the fuck out of here. We're going to get this. We're going to be methodical. Who did Clint hire as the director? Best place to fill Philip Kaufman's shoes. Clint Eastwood. (laughs) (laughs) He directed the film himself, which is, I think, better than just getting, as I say, an apparatchik along to do it. And it was a good film, and I think there's a lot to like in The Outlaw Josie Wales. It's a bitter anti-government tract. (laughs) It says on Wikipedia, Kaufman was less happy with the novel's political stance. He felt that it had been written by a crude fascist and that the man's hatred of government was insane. He also felt that element of the script needs to be severely toned down, but he later said Clint didn't, and it was his film. You'll be surprised to learn that Clint didn't want to make the film more pro-government. So it's about a man who is betrayed by everyone, but especially government. Um, and he, jo- he, you know, he joins the Confederate Army, but then they betray him too. Uh, I, th- I, I think all government, man. Yeah, I, well, I think the Confederates betray him by giving in to the Union, and uh, he, he wants to, he wants to stay fighting because they murdered his family. Like I say, often in Eastwood films, women can just be props to be murdered or, or sexually yes. assaulted. I think he might have a son in this as well who gets killed. Anyway, all his family get killed. There's the great scene which I clipped in our last episode, like so many Clint clips, where he's kind of saying, governments don't help people. You know, (laughs) (laughs) people help themselves. (laughs) Something like that. He's talking to the Native American chief, and then the Native American chief is like, yes, this is very wise. I respect you. Um... I
0: came here to die with you. I'll live with you. It ain't so hard for men like you and me. It's living, it's hard. And all you've ever cared about's been butchered or raped. Governments don't live together, people live together. Governments, you don't always get a fair word or a fair fight while I've come here to give you either one or get either one from you. And I'm saying that men can live together without butchering one another. It's sad that governments are achieved by the double tongues.
2: He's almost as brazen as John Wayne at times, sneaking political messages in there. Like, the, like, like <laughs> yeah, the Alamo right? is notorious for that. There's very anti-communist elements, like, snuck into the Alamo. which Of course, not or, Snuck uh, into it.
1: <laughs> or the bit at the end of Big Jim McLean, which is, of course, just a straight-up propaganda film. <laughs> Big Jim McLean, a.k.a. marijuana for the European audiences. Yeah. But where John Wayne is just like, oh, we just, we've got a great constitution. It's just a shame that some people go around abusing it. And what I'm saying is we need to change the constitution to ban freedom of speech. so it's pretty much like that yeah but good film definitely Clint was coming into his own as a director at that point a director of westerns especially although he would only do two more as a director at this point oh yeah
2: The Outlaw of Josie Wales that was the film that my dad encouraged me to watch and got me into Clint Eastwood yeah great movie
1: great movie absolutely and of so, course
2: an honourable mention for Chief Dan George in the film who's brilliant as a lone whatty? waity. can't remember his name I'm not sure he's yeah. a Native American actor but he's great in that movie
1: Yeah. And then I actually haven't seen a lot of Clint's stuff from the late 70s or the 80s. I got the gauntlet on Blu-ray, but I haven't watched it yet. My Blu-ray of Firefox that I ordered to watch with Tom still hasn't <laughs> arrived. Oh, uh, what? Oh, yeah, just, I, for, just for
2: reference to people, Firefox is Clint's techno thriller from the early 80s where he plays a US pilot who goes covert in Russia to steal a Soviet spy plane. But what what's the twist, Tom? God
1: knows. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's that to operate the plane or some shit like that he has to think in Russian and it can detect <laughs> if he's thinking in English and then translating oh, yes. he's got what? to he's got to actually think thoughts in Russian to use what? this like mind control device. <laughs> yeah I'm dying to watch this film as you can see where the fuck is my blu-ray I'm so that annoyed is. about that.
2: To get like so, a North American so or European like copy, so it's like
3: kids it. but Russian. You're right; it
1: was a foreign copy of some sort, Tom. Definitely, but you no, know, he has to think in Russian. Yeah. <laughs> Should be an interesting viewing. Around about this time, he did his duo of films that he co-starred in with The Monkey, Every Which (laughs) Way But Loose, and Any Which Way You Can. I couldn't tell you anything about those films, I've never seen them, but I believe they're said to be more light-hearted fare than a lot of Clint's typical stuff. And Uh, also,
2: some of these films we've mentioned also featured uh, Sandra Locke as well, who I believe he was in a relationship with at the time. And and uh, there's a bit of a problematic history there as well, because he... He definitely you're saying en-
1: problematic so much
2: <laughs> it's fucking Clint Eastwood <laughs> <laughs> uh, so
1: he essentially
2: ended a career I think He uh, yeah yeah he basically had a
1: blacklisted they split up and he told all his producer mates I won't be in your movies if you cast her or I guess it worked and she died recently so R.I.P. Sandra sure. Locke absolutely it's yeah Pretty problematic.
4: My husband did not run off with another woman, and I have no intention of working in your show. Are you messing with another man? No, I wasn't messing with another man. And furthermore, my life is not your concern. Shh,
0: you're gonna wake up dark.
4: Don't tell me what to do.
0: Look, I am your boss, and don't you forget it.
4: You are nothing but an illiterate cowboy.
1: So which, I was going to say Sandra Locke co-starring, but she's not actually in it. Which 1984 Clint Eastwood <laughs> film did we watch when you came down to visit v- <laughs> god.
2: Which we, uh, of the many? We watched Tightrope. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Yeah. where he plays a brutal sex single murders <laughs> oh god yeah Jack ok just a reference so we're not could you get your copy of tightrope and read the back out of it yeah, to the, the listeners please because this information on the back of the blu-ray is just absolutely ridiculous <laughs> like it's... imagine pitching a film like this
3: <laughs> lured by the promise of kinky sex two men prowl the french quarter One is a cop.
1: One is a killer.
3: (laughs) So they're the same person? No, no, they're not. (laughs) That's not
1: part of the film. Clint Eastwood is Wes Block, a lawman walking a tightrope, separating him from the man he strives to be. And the man he fears he is. <laughs> when it in- wait for it. <laughs> when investigating <laughs> brutal sex murders, uh. <laughs> he uncovers a link between himself and the suspect. To the, the killer same person. Uh, no. To the killer. The only good hooker is a dead one. Especially oh if God. she's been with Block. Soon, Jesus. no woman who knows Block is safe including those dearest to him because yeah.
3: they're the same person <laughs> no no a, al- although, it just sounds so much like yeah. well they try, I tell they you try what, to make you think it uh, yeah the they film, try
1: yeah. and frame him and don't the other cops, like the shiftless bureaucracy of the police force kind of oh, start yeah. thinking that <laughs> oh yeah there's more of that in the film
0: yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: they're like god damn it your methods are unconventional if, so
2: if you're giving us a give bad image <laughs> <laughs> Finish off reading The Badrack and then I'll tell Yaya about a scene in the film that's just, again, playing into uh, Clint's problematic views on feminism <laughs> and stuff like that.
1: Showcasing New Orleans at its best, writer-director Richard Tuggle. Brackets, escape from Alcatraz. New
2: Orleans at its
1: best. like Horrible sex murders going going. on. It's no bad lieutenant port of call, New Orleans. Uh, Yeah, uh, Richard Tuggle, yeah, best known as the writer of Escape from Alcatraz. So, yeah, a Clint Eastwood apparatchik who he was like, yeah, I like that guy. Let's get him back to direct. And then... He did too many takes, so Clint had him fired and directed the rest of the movie himself, although Tuggle got to keep the director's credit. Yeah, classic. So yeah, Tom, what stuck out to you about tightrope?
2: Well, there's a scene in the film when a worker who works at a rape crisis centre comes up to meet Clint to work with him, to work together to amass the killer. And I kid you not, the first line he says to her is... So I know you got a chip on your shoulder.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, I've had a tough day. I don't want to listen to them broad with a chip on her shoulder. Literally,
2: <laughs> and like, I was sat there watching him, just like she hasn't said anything, and you're already <laughs> assuming that she's got a chip on her he shoulder because she's from, she works in a rape so, crisis yeah. centre.
3: What the?
4: Fuck? Yeah, <laughs> I've tried calling you five times.
0: Sorry. Look, I'm not particularly eager to talk to women who go around with chips on their shoulder. Tell everybody I'm doing a lousy job and get everybody pissed off at me.
4: Oh, I wouldn't be eager to talk to them either. On the other hand, I'm really not eager to talk to cops who have a chip on their shoulders, stereotype women from rape centers, and then go to just about any length to avoid them. I'm sure you don't care for those kinds of cops either. Honestly, it's again, folks, terrible.
2: problematic elements in many of Clint's films.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very like mid 80s kind of urban, law and order kind of political yeah. filmmaking in a way. You know, like uh, sort of shades of Robocop. It's, yeah, where he's I trying know, to go into where, where, like, where he shoots the guy, like, uh, <laughs> and says to a woman.
3: Madam, you have suffered an emotional shock. I will notify
2: a rape crisis centre. Literally, it's... It's uh, kind yeah, of, it's...
1: yeah, shades of these. Like, they're kind of, uh, look, this is the reality for women in a harsh city full of crime. Sort of, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah. not, that's not very eloquently put, but, again, that, but that's kind of what they're portraying.
2: Again, gender politics in tightrope are all over the place. It just, no, oh. But it
1: is one of those where Clint is trying to learn. He's trying to move forward in that regard.
2: He plays a single dad in the film. He's got two young daughters in the film and his, his yeah. wife's walked out on him and he his, uh, Yeah,
1: his yeah. wife has just left him for some rich dude and left him with the kids. <laughs> And
2: this is where it all starts really this is where the running theme of Clint being fucked over by his family in different ways works (laughs) its way into his films you know yeah
1: Yeah, from there on he's just a deadbeat dad in almost every film like his family despise him so many films so many there's a trope like I think in true crime in blood work in um, the mule
2: even in 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 the uh, mule
1: yeah in the uh, well yeah in the mule in million dollar baby in absolute power uh, Gran Torino Gran Torino his family hate him in Gran Torino Uh, I think maybe in the line of fire I might be wrong oh shit no in the line of fire it's revealed that his wife left him because he failed to prevent John F. Kennedy getting (laughs) shot
2: Oh, we'll get to the Inline of Fire, because he didn't direct that one, but that's one of my favourite starring Clint Eastwood films. It's some proper good thriller schlock.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's hilarious. But yeah, in the 80s, he kind of ploughed on directing films. He did... Uh, Pale Heartbreak, Rider? Well, all right. I was just going to say Heartbreak Ridge, because I've never seen it, and I'm not interested in it, so it'll only take right. a second to mention. It's a war film. It it I haven't war, seen really. it. No, I find so few war films are any good. And I find them like, because everyone's in uniform, I can never tell the characters apart. And so I, re- <laughs> I, uh, so I really struggle to connect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. from on an emotional level it's Although, like a few I'd good say,
2: men and all the courtroom scenes that are all just in military attire and it's just like <laughs> yeah
1: I mean, one of the things I, I will say about american sniper is that by being a very excuse the pun highly trained character study it, <laughs> it avoids the homogeneity yeah. of ensemble films set in the military but yeah fuck heartbreak ridge i haven't seen it but Who cares? Pale Pale Rider. Rider.
2: The great thing about Pale Rider is that we spoke earlier on in the episode about Heaven's Gate. Now, Heaven's Gate was a turning point because it essentially broke down this time when the American film auteur... Uh, like was Clint, quite pop- yeah, like, <laughs> like, well, Clint managed to just keep on hobbling on, but yeah. Scorsese, Camino, of course, was affected by it. Several quite prominent filmmakers, Paul Schrader, would you say as well? Oh,
1: yeah, I mean, I don't know, because Schrader he got lucky in that he kind of got his break around the time that, as a director, I mean, he got his break around the time that that authoristic age of Hollywood was ending. But of course, he has intermittently struggled to finance his films ever since. So yeah. Schrader kind of got started. Just when the party was almost over But to put there, into there, perspective Yeah um, there were a few massive ambitious films Like yeah. Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate yeah. Or three years earlier William Friedkin's Sorcerer Now I've watched both oh, of these films sorcerers. recently yeah. Sorcerer is like 500 times better than Heaven's Gate Sorcerer <laughs> is a phenomenal film Heaven's Gate is like 6 out of 10 maybe <laughs>
2: Did you watch the final cut of Heaven's Gate that everyone kind of raved about when it got shown at uh, Cannes a couple of years ago? Yeah. Still yeah, pretty I mediocre, thought it was
1: still Heaven's Gate still Michael Cimino's vision which I don't really like <laughs> but, yeah, but hey but, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot <laughs> was good so he is not all bad but and, yeah, and um, Heaven's Gate itself is not all bad to be fair for about two minutes a piece all his massive set pieces are incredible there's some <laughs> good performances Christopher Walken and Chris Christopherson and Isabel Huppert so it's a solid enough yeah. film in some regards but it is three and a half hours long and unless mm. you're really on board with what is doing, it's not very fun. As you say, because it did so badly, Pale Rider was essentially <laughs> the
2: first, I think it was the first big Hollywood Western to be produced after the failure of Heaven's Gate because it Heaven's was, Gate really shot Westerns dead in the water.
1: Yeah, it um, was the highest grossing Western of the 1980s, Wikipedia tells me. And yeah, uh, so it
2: makes sense that Clint headed that up. He said,
1: there's life in this old dog yet.
2: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And but it's probably one of my favourite Clint Westerns, actually. In many ways, it's his spiritual Western, you There's a lot of religious themes in there. It's Um,
1: second only to Unforgiven for me. Yeah. And that's because I was enjoying it so much for the first hour or so. I was like, this is a five star film. Nobody. Has even been sexually assaulted And then halfway through a woman Gets sexually assaulted and I was like Four and a half stars, I'm so tired Of this being used as a plot point Luckily right. they don't succeed Clint's character manages to Heroically save the girl who's The victim of the axe just in time But yeah, I still thought Okay, I was enjoying the film enough Already, I mean I understand That the West probably wasn't a good place To be if you're a woman Probably <laughs> yeah. a, an appalling place to be it would have been a very cruel, misogynistic society. I just feel this plot was working perfectly fine without that. Yeah. yeah.
3: I get you. Still, great film otherwise. Yeah,
1: in terms of Pale Rider, again,
2: Clint single-handedly bringing the Western back into American film in a unique Western setting in the snowy tundras of California where there's a colony around a mine. They own the land, but some fucking tycoons trying to use force to get them off the land. So when they run through the town, the very opening of the film is when they first rampage through the town and they literally shoot a kid's dog dead. And she goes to bury her dog, and she says prayers, and that's what summons the preacher, played by Clint Eastwood in the film, to the town to come and defend them. And uh, is
1: he human? Is he from another realm? Who knows? Know. They leave it very ambiguous. But yeah. you know, beautifully
2: photographed film, yeah. really good looking film, and
1: fantastically gripping and entertaining, and the supporting characters are yeah. so well drawn in it, which is necessary because Clint's character is necessarily to the plot a blank canvas yeah, yeah. You know, he's a cipher he's the one
2: that pulls them together and stuff michael Moriarty is good in the film is hul barrett i think his name in the film is and chris penn's in the film as well a young chris penn is that sean um, penn's brother yes and richard keel who played jaws in the bond films <laughs> oh wow okay so not jaws in jaws he gets his bollocks crushed by Clint when Clint fucking, like, swings a fucking sledgehammer at him.
1: Oh, yeah, fuck! Oh, my God! Yeah, what, the huge guy who gets hit in the balls, yeah? That's it, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, okay,
3: yeah, no. This <laughs> film rules. Oh, yeah. Uh, the one on the left is the Hood's boy, Josh.
0: The other one...
3: Uh, I-, I ain't never seen him before.
0: Friend of yours back? Yep. He's our new preacher. Huh? I hope you won't take it personal. We tell you to get the hell out of Carbon Canyon. Now. Well, there's a lot of sinners hereabouts. You wouldn't want me to leave before I finish my work, would you?
3: preacher Take care
0: of you. thanks for stopping by son
2: towards the end of the film the tycoon brings in this gang of they call them deputies but they're just hired men essentially and they come yeah, just in thugs, they, vigilantes. they fucking,
1: you know they're Pinkertons just no good fucking scabs. They shoot
2: down this drunk guy who's from the colony who walks into the town with a big gold nugget and he's just pissed. He's yeah. just like bragging off in front of the tycoons. So they send the deputies out, make him dance and he ends up drawing his gun and gets shot dead horribly like shot multiple yeah. times and then shot in the head and then Clint gets revenge at the end by just shooting the head like he takes them all out one by one. In classic Clint fashion, very unique ways he takes them all down and then yeah. he just goes up to him and shoots him multiple times point blank and then gets out <laughs> (laughs) a short stubbed gun and just shoots him dead in the forehead. (laughs) No, 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 Tom, Like
1: it might be our political differences, but I think we had slightly different readings of the film. So (laughs) it it might be that because of my right-wing libertarian politics, I kind of saw it as a mamby-pamby, lefty, liberal, cultural, Marxist, (laughs) anti-establishment screed. Whereas I think you saw it as a little bit more right-wing and individualistic. I see (laughs) it as the way
2: sometimes you Just gotta shoot people multiple times in the head. Sometimes you just you just gotta get a gun and you just gotta kill people.
1: I thought it was about he teaches the villagers to band together against the bad industrialists.
2: Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. He does it himself at the end, doesn't he? He gives them encouragement, but he does most of the hauling and stuff in terms of... I suppose,
1: yeah. It's not
2: like I don't really want to make too many comparisons with Meituan, where it's more of a collective effort to scare off the mining company, but yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. They have got the similar element of, yeah, the mining company hiring a bunch of men with guns to come and fuck them up for not doing what they want. I mean, it's a strike can mate one isn't it and it, in Pale Rider it's because they want the land yeah. but I mean lot, you know but, uh, yeah. both, it's, it's both definitely both nice
2: of... seeing Clint depict rich tycoons as being just utter assholes well yeah I mean, he's standing uh, up for the working it, it, man it, you know
1: it's a bit kind of like a watered down version of the politics from spaghetti westerns which often portrayed capitalists and industrialists in a very negative light for instance yeah. uh, yes, Sergio yeah. Leone's own Once Upon a Time in the West and a subsequent yeah. film Duck You Sucker <laughs> but So Pale Rider, undoubtedly the best Clint Eastwood film of the 80s. Oh, yeah. Um, There were a couple of more personal projects after this for him as a director. He did Bird, a film about Charlie Parker, starring Forrest Whitaker as the great jazz musician. And then he did White Hunter Black Heart in 1990, which is a film where Clint basically plays John Huston, one of the great directors of the golden age of Hollywood, who I think in the run-up to shooting the film The African Queen, starring Humphrey Bogart, John Huston went out to Africa because he really wanted to shoot an elephant and I've never watched this film but apparently yeah Clint is doing a John Huston voice in it although still sounding quite a lot like Clint's and he's just kind of like it's not a crime to shoot an elephant it's a sin
0: Mr. Speaker, the uh, Leader of the House has announced that we're going to be debating the Ivory Bill. Donald Tusk. Isn't the reality that the big elephant in the room is, is the statement this afternoon by the European Union Council President, Donald Tusk?
2: is he smoking as many cigars as John Houston in the film? I would be interested oh, yeah. to see that. Sm-
1: smoking as much loud as uh, <laughs> I don't know John <laughs> Houston was a- was a marijuana smoker. Yeah, I wouldn't, right. I wouldn't doubt that, yeah. Yeah, right. We're I... into the 90s now. Uh, can I have oh, a piss? Absolutely. Good shit. Yeah. Yeah, right.
3: It's no real, real. It's real. real. It's It's the real real. (laughs) reality.
2: Not long before we get to in the line of fire. Oh no, (sighs) I
1: can't wait. Well, we've got got Unforgiven first.
2: Oh shit, of course, yeah. Oh god,
1: I've seen loads of the films from here on, but yeah. Right, I'll see you guys in a minute. Alright, cool.
2: Grab the bong, bring it to the microphone, that's it. Light it, inhale it. Yep, take it in. And exhale. Um, no, I've had a good Christmas, matey. Um, how, how are you? How's your relationship going? Ah, that's it. That's what
3: I want to hear. It's good. It's good, man. I
2: can feel it coming um, through the
3: microphone. <laughs> uh, nice, so man. that's. Yeah. <laughs> What's Hello? going on? Here he is. I miss hey. Just being hey. talking about stuff and hitting the bong. Oh, nice. Yeah, so you got back into the bong. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right, okay, so let's get into the 90s. So, the 1990 shit, shit. was a two film year for. <laughs> Fucking hell, you can hear that bog. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs>
3: what bog? <laughs> uh...
1: <laughs> right, and that's all we've been able to edit for now. Stay tuned for Clint's career from 1990 to the present. I picked up this great book of interviews called Conversations with Clint and at one point in the book Warren Zevon just randomly turns up and sits with Clint and the interviewer for an extended period of time. So in honour of that seismic coming together of the minds, let's play this out with another seismic meeting of the minds, that's the phrase isn't it? This is Bob Dylan covering Warren Zevon's Mutineer. I'd say Clint actually reminds me of Bob in many ways. I mean, they're both old as shit now. Clint's about 10 years older than Bob. Bob's in his mid-70s, Clint in his late 80s. And they both still just love to work. Be it, Bob used to do 100 shows every year, now he's cut down, does 80 shows every year, which is not bad for a man, as I say, in his mid-70s. Clint directs a film, well he tends to do a couple in short succession, maybe a year off. He's generally not having actual time off in that year off. He's planning his next projects. These are guys who just, they live and breathe work. Dylan loves performing. He still makes records quite regularly to this day. And Clint loves directing, producing, periodically acting. And they've both got very, very rough singing voices. So enjoy Mutineer. (laughs) Mutineer.
3: i
4: It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.